podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Better than some unnamed characters. Not quite as good as yourself, ever. Well, I am chipper today, Carl, because Liverpool won a game of football last night. But we will wait one moment to talk about that. I want your opinion on something. Now, as you'll be aware, there is a, a, a thing on at the moment called the transfer window. And that is when players are allowed to move from one club to another. There are three players of interest who've come to the Premier League in recent weeks. One is Joe Felix, but it's only a loan, so there's no real point in talking about that. Matthias Cunha has joined Wolves. We've, we've chatted about that. What I want to know is what do you make of the signing by Wolverhampton Wanderers? of Pablo Sarabia from Paris Saint-Germain for £4.4 million. Right, so this is one of those ones where it's annoying because it's quite good, even though it's also annoying because I don't really like the player. So I'm not a Sarabia fan, I never have been really. I think there's certain things that he's very good at, um, you know, as tends to be the case with most professional footballers or indeed professional people in their chosen field. They are usually good at something. That's how, kind of how they get there. But he's not my type of player. Um, however, that said, I think for the level that Wolves are at, the level that he is at and what they've paid for him, I think this is an immaculate deal for them. Um, he's a goal scoring wide player. They need goals. That's the first thing. He's not a very, very expensive addition. I'm not really sure what the wage situation is for Sarabia there, but you know, it's another finger and another pie and another Jorge sort of involvement, let's say, mm. um, which is you know works out well for them once in a while. It doesn't doesn't always play out exactly the way they hope, but I think this one's a pretty good deal for them. I think it's uh, it's it's again another one of those second line players where we all know that they need just a big massive number nine to actually put the ball in the net. But I think he he solves one or two issues for them as well and will contribute to the goal scoring where some of the others don't. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I did ask you largely because I know you're not a fan of the player and I was curious to see how you thought he would do. Uh, I think for the price point, I'm not sure you're going to do much better. Um like you said, I think I think he solves some of the problems at Wolves. Not all of them. I think he, he'll be a good squad addition to that group. Uh, he should fit in quite well. He's he's the type of player that can fill gaps in a squad, and I think that's important. So, yeah, welcome to Wolves. Uh, their third signing of the window. They obviously signed Mario Lamina. 
who had a not-so-good time at Southampton but did well at Fulham and has done well at Nice since going there. They signed Matthias Cunha, and it looks like Joao Gomes will be next, though Leon seemed to have tried to hijack that deal, so we'll see how that one plays out. But fair play to Wolves, setting themselves up well to lose Matthias Nunes to us in the summer. Uh, let's move on to the topic of Wolves. Liverpool played Wolves last night in the FA Cup third round replay. Jürgen made significant changes to the team, as was expected, and as would have happened regardless because it was the FA Cup. But, Carl, we saw a brand of football that looked more like, well, a brand of football last night, as opposed to whatever it was they served up against Brentford, Wolves the first time, Leicester and Brighton at the weekend. This was this looked like a team of people out playing football rather than just a group of lads out having a kickabout. Yes, it did. There was um there were there were some things to take from this game, which is the first, you know, positive spin on it. We won, which is another. Um we sunk to such a level that last night was was a big step forward. And I tell you what, last night wasn't very good. In in quite a lot of respects, it wasn't very good. We played a brand of football, you're absolutely right. That in itself is progress. We also played a brand of football which was kind of what you'd expect from Wolves themselves, say, or any other team which are down sort of the lower reaches of the table or, you know, not got a very strong side out or that kind of thing. It was it was a notable group effort. And for that, I'm very, very pleased. It was a pretty poor overall performance. And for that, I am displeased because that that in itself is still better than what we've been serving up recently. Yeah, but I think if we're being honest, if it wasn't for Alisson, we would be down the league even further than we currently are. Uh, we'd be keeping Everton and West Ham company based on the other performances we've had this season, if not for that Brazilian goalkeeper. And it wasn't our first choice 11. You had Harvey Elliott starting on the wing, Fabio Carvalho starting on the other wing, and Cody Gakpo through the middle. None of that is ideal, though Elliott as a winger is more ideal than Elliott as a midfielder. Um, In defence, you had James Milner right back and Costa Simicus at left back. Neither of them are first choice. And then you had Joe Gomez, who has been largely poor this season, playing centre-back next to Ibu. And I thought, to his credit, I thought Joe was very good. I thought Ibu was very good. And I thought the midfield three played very well. And that, to me, that five-man group playing well and functioning as a unit and looking like they knew what they were meant to be doing, that, to me, was progress. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, you can probably pick eight, nine players and say that this is progress in this position from last night. Um, Like I say, it wasn't anywhere near a kind of sensational, free-flowing, top-of-the-game sort of performance, but there were... And uh, actually, even within individual players that we can mention and say, this was this was better, I've seen every single one of them play a lot better. All of them. Like, Badstic last night was pretty good, but Badstic last night, in terms of his passing, was actually a little bit sloppy sometimes, which is normally maybe the best thing about his game in midfield. Um, so, really, really nice to see that there were improvements made and 
a couple of partnerships developing there that you could see they were actually playing in tandem with each other, like the centre-backs. I thought, like you say, both of them were pretty good. Um, I actually thought both the full-backs, while not actually uh, what you would term good in terms of like, you know, seven, eights out of tens or anything like that, I actually thought they did quite important jobs last night. Um, even to the extent of like Milner and Simikas were probably two of the top three, I thought, in terms of stopping Wolves playing uh, just by being shithouses, by falling over and winning free kicks and getting in the way and giving away free kicks and just doing anything at all to stop Wolves playing through that middle part or just slightly wider the middle part down the channels uh, where we've been having so many problems over and over and over and over again. Uh, there were a couple of occasions, both Simikas and Milner last night, didn't really have anywhere to go. So just slowed themselves down and then sped it up as much as Milner can for like two or three steps got past the man and went down and won a free kick. We didn't do anything with the free kick. We didn't go anywhere with the play. Mm. But we didn't lose the ball, get turned over and have them counter us with three people against nobody because there was a big space where the, the fullback had lost it. I thought there was a, a notable step forward in street smarts and actually being mentally switched on in the game, basically. Not great. Decision-making. Yeah, I thought decision-making was a lot better. Just involving themselves in the match, really. Like, I think you're right. I think I think you'd... you'd classify Milner and Costas as solid last night. Not spectacular, not brilliant, but solid. And one thing that I thought was notable was how they used the ball. They weren't trying to be expansive. They were keeping it simple. And they were trusting those midfield players, namely Naby and Thiago, that I can just give the ball to him and I'll let him go and do stuff further up and I can stay here in my position and I'm an outlet if they lo- if they need someone to recycle the ball to. But if we get turned over, I'm in my position. I'm not 20 yards ahead of the ball. I'm not out of the game if we lose lose the ball. And I thought that was that was a big a big factor as well because Wolves had more of the ball and it, they weren't really able to do anything with it because Milner and Costas were where they were meant to be. And by them being where they were meant to be. It meant that Ibu and Joe could stay where they were meant to be, as opposed to the Brighton game, where Ibu was making tackles at left back, then making tackles at right back, then playing centre back all by himself, because both Joel and Trent had abandoned ship to go wandering up the pitch. This actually looked like a coherent group of players who had some understanding of what they were meant to be doing. You mentioned Basetic, and let's let's just have a quick chat about him because he's very clearly a big talent, and he's very clearly somebody the club have identified as a potential first team starter at some undefined point because development is not a linear thing, and players will develop as they develop. But I thought last night it was just. There was a calmness to how he played when he had the ball at his feet, where he was willing to turn under pressure and seek the right option rather than just getting rid of the ball and putting someone else under pressure, which is something our captain is the most guilty of. Giving the ball to a player under pressure because you're scared of losing the ball or blindly hoofing a ball down the pitch because 
you're scared of losing the ball. This kid is 18 and he was Cruyff turning in the middle of the park just to slip a simple ball to Thiago because the path he'd initially taken was blocked off. He wasn't worried about losing the ball. He was confident in his abilities. And I thought him and Thiago seemed to have a decent symmetry between them. I thought Naby played particularly well, especially off the ball. I thought he was excellent. And I think Basetic less so, but I think we saw Naby Keita put forward a real marker in terms of this is the guy who should be filling that right-sided midfield role, at least for the time being. Yeah, I mean, I think Keita's performance was exactly that. It was uh, this the steadiest, most um, diligent sorts of performance you would have wanted, really. Um, it wasn't like, you know, again, we're not talking about insane levels of quality and we're not talking about, oh, can't be dropped for the rest of the season or anything like that. It was just so much more deliberate, um, really, on and off the ball that we've seen recently from whoever has been playing in that role. I, I can't honestly remember the last decent game we saw from that position. Um, the question I would have there is that he's played the full 90 and... I mean, it's it's a long old time between games. It should be fine Tuesday to uh, to the weekend, but never really know about with Naby, do we? About how he reacts or how they see him in the coaching and the fitness staff. But that performance, that willingness to sit and not go drifting into positions which he didn't need to be in, the way he was filling inside the the fullback in case they were trying to check back on a stronger foot in attacking areas, all of that kind of thing was something we haven't seen enough of. The one thing I would qualify that we didn't see from Cater, and that was more because Wolves didn't really do it too much, was the tracking of runners from deep, um, mm. which, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of talking about it, but it's something we've struggled for so long. It's something that some of the players in our squad just don't seem to do, or I'm not sure if they don't notice, or they don't really want to, or they don't react to it, or what the case is, but Wolves didn't really do that too much until Nunez came on in the second half last night, so Cater wasn't really tested in that regard, but still, steps forward in every other one, basically. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, and It has it has been a bit of a weakness of Nabi's as well, in the past, mm-hmm. largely because he doesn't have the kind of explosive pace so if someone gets a run on him, it can be hard for him to get back. But certainly in terms of the rest of the defensive work, I mean, at the weekend we saw Matoma just have immense amount of joy going down the left and cutting back in on his right. And our right-sided midfielder on the day just sailing past him and allowing him to come in field with not even a hint of a challenge whereas Naby was positioning himself well so they couldn't cut back in. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, 
you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to AnfieldIndex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. And I thought that was that was impressive. Um, the other notable thing last night, Carl, other than the actual team selection, for me, was who wasn't selected. And I don't just mean not in the team. Normally when a senior player isn't in the squad for whatever game, unless it's like an early round of the League Cup, we get a reason. You know, this player is not in the squad because they've got a hamstring injury or they've got a slight niggle or a knock or whatever, or they're unwell or they've got personal issues or whatever the case may be. Last night, Jordan Henderson and Trent Alexander-Arnold were left out of the squad completely. The club didn't give any reason. Jürgen wasn't asked about it and didn't give a reason. Not one of the main patch journalists, not James Pearce, not Paul Joyce, not Don King, not Neil Jones, not David Lynch, none of them made any remark on why neither of them were in the squad. Now, Trent got run ragged by Matoma. An absolute roasting. There's no other way to look at it. He got absolutely roasted. But you wouldn't necessarily fault Trent individually for any of the goals that were conceded. However, for their third goal, and I mentioned it on Raw, when Welbeck knocks the ball over Gomez's head, Matoma is standing completely unmarked in, in our penalty box with nobody close to him. There's also another Wolves player in our box unmarked. And Trent is still on the edge of our box with his hands on his hips watching all of this unfold. And I do wonder if the lack of effort, the lack of desire, was something that the coaching staff picked up on afterwards and maybe this was a punishment for that. Henderson's performance against Brighton was, you wouldn't see it in a pub league. 12 seconds in, he's hoofing the ball. He had six ridiculous hoofs within 38 minutes. He made one challenge in the first half. He allowed seven different players to run around him without making a challenge. And the only challenge he made was when he kicked through the back of Moises Caicedo when the ball was already gone. Do you think they were just flat out dropped? Or am I looking into this too much? Um, It's a tricky one because we kind of had positions covered, I suppose, with the subs. And there are a few people like uh, Jones, obviously, being back to full fitness. You wouldn't really want a first-teamer on the bench taking the minutes that he can get to work back, that kind of thing. But I wouldn't be surprised if at least a couple of them were. Obviously, the bigger test here is the weekend and who gets left out. Because, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't imagine that a few of them even wanted to play last night. Like Whatever about, you know, you want to get back out there and you want to put it right and all the rest of it. I'm sure you do, but I'm also sure that after a performance like that and after a result like that, sometimes you just want a few days to get out of your head and just get back to normal stuff on the training ground and try and sort yourself out first but without having to go and do a crappy replay in the cup away from home, ridiculous night, playing with a bunch of kids, all that kind of stuff. Probably some don't want to do that. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that was partly the case as well. Um, I... I don't think that either of them are going to be left out against Chelsea. We'll get to that, but 
hopefully at least some words have been had, let's say. I get your point, but if if Mohamed Salah is happy to go along and sit on the bench and come off the bench in said crappy cup replay, yeah. who the fuck is anyone else to say they don't want to do it? I completely agree. Alison Becker sat on the bench, knows he's not coming on, but there he is. That could have been Adrian. Alison didn't need to be brought for that game, but there he was. You know? So maybe there's egos at play, but who knows? Who knows? We'll move on to Chelsea at the weekend. Um, The only real positives of our season have been that Frank Lampard is very slowly bringing Everton into the championship and that Chelsea have been hilariously bad and that Todd Bowley is an absolute moron. These are the funniest things of the season. They're the only funny things that I can find in this season because we're so poor. Um, In the summer, they brought in Raheem Sterling, Kaladu Koulibaly, Carney Chukwemeka, Mark Cucurella, Wesley Fofana, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, and Dennis Zakaria spending roughly 280 million net in the summer. Uh, they also brought in Gabriel Slanina and Cesare Caicedo, which are part of that. That was another 20 million on young players. Um, after a handful of games on the 7th of September, a week after the transfer window closed, they decided to sack Thomas Tuchel, the manager they had bought all of those players for, and they appointed Graham Potter. They currently sit 10th in the league. They they have lost five of their last eight in the Premier League. Sorry, yeah, five of the last eight. They have two wins in their last 10 in the Premier League. One against Bournemouth, who everybody beats, and one against Crystal Palace, who are in dreadful form. Things have not been good at Chelsea under Graham Potter. They've they've won five league games of the 13 he has been in charge of, and that includes the first three, one of which was away to Crystal Palace, where Thiago Silva should have been sent off after six minutes. They beat Wolves, who were bottom in the league, and they beat an Aston Villa team that were very clearly trying to get Steven Gerrard sacked. Then they drew at Brentford, drew at Chelsea, got hammered by Brighton, lost to Arsenal, lost to Newcastle. Then, like I said, they beat Bournemouth, drew at Crystal Palace, sorry, drew at Forest, lost to City, lost to Fulham, and uh, beat Crystal Palace. That is that is appalling by anyone's measure. And their reaction to that has just been to spend more money. So in this window, uh, Benoit Badiashile, David Datro Fafana, and Mikhailo Mudrik have arrived, as well as Andre Santos, who's a young player that they paid about $18 million for, and Joe Felix in on loan. Inclusive of the money that Todd Bowley has guaranteed Leipzig for Christopher Nkunku, which is a deal that's done for the summer, and the money for sacking Tuchel and hiring Graham Potter, uh, we're looking at a spend of, in the region, of $500 since Todd Bowley took over, Carl. That is magnificently stupid for a team that currently sits 10th in the league. (laughs) 
it has been uh, quite quite a wild ride watching Chelsea, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, they are, I'll be perfectly honest, often the talk of the office and uh, talking about, you know, direction and how clubs are run and all the rest of it. And they're always put forward as like, are they the currently worst run club until, you know, they get themselves sorted out and finalise their, their hirings of all key appointments and all that kind of stuff. And I must be honest, every time it comes up, I still put forward Everton as the counterbalance to this because, you know, I, I feel I must. I feel it's on me. It's obligated that I do this. And just about Everton are still ahead of Chelsea in that ranking, mm. I think. But the scattergun nature of this, the the very, very different people who are making decisions about certain things, especially the recruitment, the varying amounts to which they are prepared to spend on certain players and not on others, uh, other targets that they've had along the way is revealing, let's say. And again, I think that this comes back to the fact that it's it's been very scattergun, not just with the recruitment of players, but with the recruitment of off-pitch personnel, let's say, people who are going to be the decision-makers going forward. And Todd Bowley steps back a little bit away from the, the player recruitment side. Um, they have had injury issues as well. We've got to point that out. There's you know more players missing and quite a lot of key ones for them than, than even Liverpool have. But even without that, it has been nothing short of appalling, to be honest, from, from Graham Potter. Like a, a decent start, but then quite quickly lost it. And I think he was... Not a fan favourite coming in. Um, it, it, not necessarily someone that they wanted out straight away or anything in the way that like Nathan Jones at Southampton is facing, but definitely not an overwhelming addition to the to the dugout, I would say. And most Chelsea supporters who I know are like acknowledging that this isn't going to be one of those occasions where he gets sacked like anytime soon, but pretty much against him. Yeah. So here's the thing, right? The summer was so clearly just a very rich idiot deciding he knew better than everybody and throwing money around, trying to make an impression, trying to announce himself on the scene. But as soon as the transfer window closed, if you had decided... Now, you didn't just sack Thomas Tuchel on the basis that there was a couple of bad results. Like, they didn't just lose to Dinamo Zagreb and think, right, that's it, he's got to go because now we've lost three games this season. That's not how that works. Clearly, the decision that they wanted to move on from him had been made a little bit before that because they clearly appointed Graham Potter. They clearly talked to Graham Potter in advance. They didn't get Graham Potter done in a day. So... To me, right, he appoints himself as the interim sporting director, which is is just hilarious to begin with. Surely when the transfer window closes, all focus, all focus needs to go on appointing a sporting director. And you say to him, we're going to sack the manager, you're coming in, and then you're going to be heavily involved in picking the next manager. And then you're going to fill out the rest of the staff. You're going to go and find the people you want to help you run the recruitment side of things. But instead, they go and they get Potter. They go and they steal scouts and recruitment people from Southampton and from Brighton and from elsewhere. Many of whom, by the way, 
perform the same function. So I'm not really sure whether it's just an idea that, oh, if we have all the smart people in a room, they'll come up with all the smart ideas. But what happens? Like, we're six months in now. There's been no mention of them even being close to finding a sporting director. The only name that continues to go around is Michael Edwards, who doesn't seem to have any interest in that job. And I think that's in part also lazy journalism that, you know, not not by good journalists, but, you know, the crappy outlets will just report any old crap to fill column inches. Like, when I see something in the Express about Michael Edwards to Chelsea, I just think, well, you were starved of something to put in that column, so you've put this in, but there's no real substance to it. What if they appoint... Paul Mitchell, let's just pull a name, Paul Mitchell from Monaco. And he arrives and says, well, hang on, I don't want to work with him, him or him. I want to bring my people with me, the people that I trust, that I already have a relationship with, that we already have a a working method that is proven. Do they then turn around to Joe Shields and the rest and say, look, we know that, you know, you got your your job at at, uh, Southampton and we promised you the sun, moon, and the stars, but we actually don't want you anymore. So so thanks and goodbye. Like, it's just, it's such, it's completely the wrong way to operate in, in every way. Now, you are right. Everton are the worst front club in, in, in England, but for very different reasons. Number Well, largely because the, their owners just don't care anymore. They've just sort of given up on the whole thing. But Bowley is trying far too hard, in my view, when really the move in the summer was, let's assess, do we want Thomas Tuchel? If we don't, let's get rid. If we do want Thomas Tuchel and we're going to back him, let's get a sporting director he knows and let them work together. Let us, even if it's a year of transition, Let's spend carefully. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast which is every day at 4pm, Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index, and follow us there on Twitter, at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. And save our powder, or keep our powder dry, for next summer, where Tuchel can be really honest about who he wants to keep and who he doesn't. Where we have an entire year to identify and work on the targets that we really want. Because all they've really done is make a rod for their own back. And I mean... Things like this Mikhailo Mudrik deal, Carl, I mean, I'm struggling to think of a bigger 
a bigger overpay for a player. Now, Arsenal were willing to pay the same amount, just in a different structure. But in the summer, you probably could have had this kid for 15, 20 million. Now you're paying 89 million for him? I, I just don't see how any smart people would make that decision. Um, I mean, like... Might as well start with Mudrick, I guess. Might as well start there because it's the most recent thing, right? The problem that I have is not that he's a lot of money because it is. It's an absolute ton of money. And it's not even that I don't even know that much about the player because, you know, that's just the leagues that I watch and don't watch. I don't really watch Ukrainian teams at the moment because there's not enough uh, visibility for them. There's, you know, the, it's a very difficult league in terms of the competitiveness obviously with what's going on off the pitch and all of that kind of thing it's not even the fact that Mudrik has to be to be the same value for money let's say um nine times as good as Kvitsa Kvaratskhelia has been for Napoli having signed yeah. him in the summer for the same position let's say for in terms of what they costs the problem that I have is that Chelsea how do I phrase this properly it's not that it's not like Chelsea needed this one position, right? It's not that they've identified this is the position that Graham Potter needs and this is the style of player that Graham Potter needs. This is the the absolute pinnacle of that position that Graham Potter needs to, to put his system into place. These are players that they're bringing in for the, a way that they want to play based on not based on the mm. type of um, player profile that they want to be bringing through. People like Kani Chukwameka, for example, a younger player who's got a higher ceiling. Fine. Cool. And Mudrik has a higher ceiling. Cool. But how much higher do you need him to go now to be worth the amount that you've paid for him? And on what um, balance are you judging him to be capable of fulfilling that? Because you look at the the number of minutes that he's played, the number of appearances that he's had in a, a top-level competitive environment, it's it's not really comparable to anybody else who's gone for probably within 60-70% of that amount of money for, for that level of league that they've been playing in. He's had a couple of Champions League appearances, of course, and that's fine, that's good. It, little bit of international experience. 73 it's, senior games in his entire career, Carl. Yeah, it's a, it's a club and country. Gamble for that amount of money. Um, and again, that we're talking about a club here who, again, they have injuries and that's you know a current thing, but a lot of players who are a very, very similar playing profile to Mudrik. Like, not, mm. not huge, huge difference between him and, let's say, Christian Pulisic, for example, in terms of area of the pitch, ball-carrying, what they look to do in the final third. Obviously, there's going to be a huge disparity between them in terms of uh, personality and dressing room and how much they think that they're going to be on the pitch and maybe their salary as well and all that kind of stuff. But I'm saying here that right at this moment in time, if you're team building and you've taken it upon yourself to do the team building, more or less, you're not necessarily bringing in the most important positions. You're not necessarily bringing in the characters. You know, there's, there's absolutely no way in hell that Mudrik, at the stage of his career that he's at, is... A you know a, a leader, somebody to come in and be a focal part of Graham Potter's message, let alone the playing style. Nothing like this is is going to be the case with him. If he turns out to be a great player, then cool, fair enough. But they're not doing that and everything else as well this month. Like no, they're not. They've put a couple of of building blocks in place. I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, Koulibaly disappears after the end of this season and maybe goes back to Italy or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, because with Badi Sheila coming in, obviously Fafana. They've basically got themselves a structure now to, to rebuild the defence. <clears throat> and that's that's okay. That's a good start. Uh, arguably, that's where you should start. 
But now they've also yeah. got like what, four, four, maybe five attackers, depending on how you want to classify them, who have come in this year. And most of them are not even in or around the team at the moment. Joao Felix is a, a really, really short-term, really, really expensive addition. And he's actually going to cost, what, 15% or so of the Mudrick fee? But for yeah. six months, not seven and a half years. Um, That's the thing. It, it's such a such a scattered approach to the team building process. There's not a fixed way of a fixed path that they're going on. There's a couple of quick fixes. There's a couple of short term ones. There's a couple of gambles. There's a couple of really expensive outlays. And in amongst all this, we're talking about Todd Bowley, obviously they, they brought in Christopher Vivelle, who is, I think his tech, his, his term is, or his job title is technical director, I think at the minute. And yeah, he obviously has quite a lot of influence, but he's not only going to be doing, uh, recruitment, and he's not the only person who is doing the recruitment. And whether they actually bring in an actual sport and director now, I'm not really sure because every time they speak about it, it's always like in terms of a very collaborative approach, a groupthink approach. They want certain people to be continually involved. A in transfer it. committee, yeah, basically, it is that. And they don't really <laughs> want a Campos or Mitchell who, like you say, has an established way of working, and they have their own people who come in. I don't think they want one person who's just going to be doing that. Uh, I, th- I think that they only want to be bringing in people who are very, very aware that it's like a... a collaborative a, approach. Yeah, a flat, flat hierarchy, basically. And it's going to be a, a group think which, which leads them to that. But again, then you question, well, which people are going to come in in this group think and be okay with the decisions already taken? Or are they still then going to be below in terms of how, how weighty their opinion is the people who have already made these decisions on Mudrick and on Felix and on Adeshila or whoever else you want, because there's a, there's a lot to sort out in this team. That's the thing, and, and like Liverpool tried that, and it didn't work until Michael Edwards got promoted above the rest, and then it started to work. Maybe Vival is the one who will get promoted above the rest. Maybe he will have the most sway, but I mean, we'll have to wait and see. The thing with Mudrick that gets me here, right? So before this season, he had played, in his entire career, he had played 47 games at club level. And I remember in the summer, when Kavicha went to Napoli, his name was brought up. Like, if teams that missed out on Kavicha were looking for the winger, this is the guy to go and get. And everybody who'd seen a lot of him said, He's a talented player, but he's not nearly the same level of player as Kavicha. But you'll get him for a little bit more because it's Shakhtar rather than coming out of Russia. But that's what the fee will be, and that's the type of player, like a lesser Kavicha. He has one great half season. In a league in which many of the best players left because of the war, a very much weakened Ukrainian Premier League. 12 games, by the way, 7 goals, as opposed to 2 goals in 47 before that. So, there's that. What they've really done is they've bought him based on what he did in the Champions League, which is have 5 good games and score 3 good goals against teams who didn't know who he was. They hadn't seen him before. And it was notable that the second time each team saw him, they dealt with him a lot better. But 
However, let's move on from Mudrick. You mentioned Joe Felix. I actually think this might not be as silly a move as people think, because here's my thinking on this, and I, I, I could be wrong. I probably am, but I, I, I might be right. They have a deal agreed to bring in Nkunku in the summer. That apparently is something that that Potter was very keen on, was to get Nkunku and wanted them to try and get him this window. And wants to build his attack around Christopher Nkunku and what his skill set brings. So if you can't have him now, but you want to build your team to that so that when he walks in, there's a couple of slight alterations, but everything is basically ready to go and he's the, the focal point of the attack. Joe Felix has a similar enough skill set that he could do a decent impression of Nkunku for five, six months. And you can maybe get the team functioning towards being ready to receive Nkunku in and be at a level to start next season where you can say, we've clearly worked towards something. That's the only logic I can find in signing Joe Felix on loan for that kind of fee, covering all his wages with no option to buy. Now, Chelsea fans seem to think they're going to get to keep him. I think you're going to be really disappointed. I don't think your club wants to keep him. I think they've bought they brought him in purely to be the test run for what Nkunku will bring them. Yeah, not the worst theory I've ever heard, to be fair. Um... I mean, they didn't really use him in that way. I wouldn't think in in the the part of the match that he actually managed to play before a suspension hit. Um, didn't really hear any comparisons with Darwin Nunez at the time. I thought I was going to, to be honest, in the days afterwards, but not not on this occasion. Um, oh well, Chelsea bad doesn't generate the same type of hype as Liverpool bad. This the, there is that. I, I look. I'm going to live in denial for the next five months and, and remain convinced that we will gazump Chelsea to the signing of Nkunku because otherwise, what the hell have these podcasts been about for the last three years? There's <laughs> no life wasted, basically. Um, Look, they, they've done some good things. I think Fafana and and Badi Ashile, like, I, I'd look at that and say that is a long-term centre-back pairing that could be very, very good. They're both really talented players. They're both players with a lot of room to develop in the short term they'll make mistakes but long term I think that's something that you can absolutely see being the foundation stone of a potential title winner with Reese James on one side and then either Chilwell or Cucurella whose deal to them remains an absolute mystery for me you had a 50 million pound left back why have you bought a 60 million pound left back whatever that's fine but you've spent five hundred million now, and I'm I'm looking at this team and I'm thinking, well, Kepa's your best goalkeeper, so that's that's problem A. I wouldn't trust any of your central midfielders other than Kovacic to a stay fit and b be good for an entire season at this point in everybody's respective careers, and c who is exactly going to score your goals. Where where are they? Where's that aspect coming from? Because as brilliant as Nkunku is, if they're going to keep playing four two three one, which Potter seems to have settled on, surely Nkunku is the ten. Is Kai Havertz still the nine? Because if he is, fair enough. I, I, I think that's potentially 
something that will work with Nkunku behind Havertz, uh, Mudrik on one wing, and whoever on the other wing. But where are the goals coming from? Because what you're telling me is you've basically got four players that will get you between... Because if it's, you know... Maybe it's Sterling and maybe he finds his best form, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's Mason Mount. Maybe that's where they're going to use Mason Mount on the right wing, which is an awful waste, but whatever. What I'm seeing there is is four players that will get me between 8 and 15 goals a season in the league, but nobody that's going to get me 20. So I'm very confused by the fact that they've spent so much money and still, I would say, need at least three starters maybe four, and squad players, because you've got no depth behind Reese James. You'll need depth in midfield as well, because you've got to start clearing out some of what you have. You'll need depth at centre-back. You could bring back Levi Colwell, and maybe he's the depth there. But, you know, they spent all this money, and I still think they're as far away as they were when they started off, because they've kind of gone about and replaced the better players that were in the team, and not the issues. Yeah, and I mean, above and beyond all of this, you say Potter's settled on four-two-three-one, but he still played back three in like one of the last two games, I think, and then went yeah. went back three during the match in the other one as well. And he is probably the most renowned manager in the league for chopping and changing mid-game as well. And he likes his teams to be flexible. And the four-two-three-one in general as a structure, I think, is fine, even with those players, because you're going to get a huge amount of uh, mobility from, let's say, Nkunku as your 10 or your 9, and Kai Havertz as your 10 or your 9, able to filter out to the right-hand side, and Mason Mount therefore able to come a little bit in field and all the rest of it. So as a quartet, pretty good. You're still going to get a lot of movement there from them, but it is much more about, I think, for for Potter's plan, about the build-up play, about getting people involved in the final third. I mean, Chelsea, for like three or four games in a row there, they barely created anything. Like They had very, very few mm. chances, even in the games that they did score in. A bit like Liverpool last night, to be honest. We scored a bit of a worldie, but didn't really do anything else too much more uh, in an attacking sense against Wolves. So it's uh, do I, there's a question there from Guy just come in. Do we think Greg Potter will want anything to do with Lukaku? I don't think he'll want anything to do with Lukaku, and I don't think Lukaku wants anything to do with Chelsea. No, neither do I. Neither do I. Um, I, I think that's a, a failed experiment that I don't think Thomas Tuchel wanted anything to do with Lukaku either to be truthful. I think that's just something that Roman did because Roman has, you know, had, had his, had his whims. Um, you look at Chelsea this season in terms of just scoring goals and creating, uh, they scored one away to Everton on the opening day. They created very little in the entire game. Um, two, two with Spurs lost three nil away to Leeds, uh, beat Leicester two, one lost to Southampton two, one created very little in the game. 2-1 against West Ham. Then they sack Thomas Tuchel. So under Graham Potter, they get two goals in the first game, three in the second game, and two in the third game. There's seven goals in three games under Graham Potter. Since then, they didn't score against uh, Brentford. They scored one against United, one against Brighton, none against Arsenal, none against Newcastle, two against Bournemouth, one against Forest, none against City, one against... Fulham and won against uh, Palace. So they've scored seven goals in the last 10 games, having scored seven goals 
in the first three games under Potter. They, the big thing I always griped with, with Potter at, at Brighton was the lack of goals. And I always just put it down to the fact that they didn't have a number nine. They had Danny Welbeck up front, who was there more to for work rate and stuff like that. But he's come to a Chelsea team that didn't really have an out-and-out goal scorer, but never really seemed to struggle too badly for goals. And now they can't score any goals. And Brighton, with the group of players he left behind, are now scoring goals for absolute crack. There is absolutely not enough goals in the world for this Brighton team right now. They're banging in twos and threes every time they set out in the pitch. So, for all his tactical advancements and and his you know the thought that he puts into things, I do just wonder if maybe he he isn't capable of of actually coaching a team that scores enough goals to be successful. I mean, it's possible. I, don't, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's that he's not capable. I think it's that a, an adjustment is needed in the mindset. Um, we spoke about this when he joined, actually, that there's, there's going to be a period where Graham Potter himself, as a coach, <clears throat> even just as his own way of thinking as a person, will need to understand and come to terms with the fact that you're at a different level of club now and there is the not just the demands that you do better in terms of wins, but actually an expectation that you will win every match. And if you don't, even if you think you've played well, you've missed the point here. You, your team exists to win. And that will take a little bit of time for him to get used to. And part of that is probably that aspect of making sure that, first and foremost, his teams get to be a bit more ruthless. And it's all good being the the style of play that you want and all the rest of it. But sometimes you are going to have to sacrifice one element of gameplay you want to make sure you've got the players in the box or the the commitment from deeper areas or the delivery comes across in a bit better way for one particular player or whatever it is to make sure you score enough goals like there will always be great teams who don't score goals on stretches of matches and all the rest of it you only have to look at Man City at the minute they got the best goal scorer on the planet and they can't hit the target at the minute over the last couple of games but it's a short-term thing but for Potter it's not short-term because we've seen it several seasons in a row and a couple of times sorry a couple of seasons we even said that maybe that's a little bit too much uh, loyalty in terms of the people who he's already been working with at Brighton and he wants to keep them unless he can get the absolute person that he wants for that number nine I think you have to probably be a little bit more practical when you're at a bigger club that you might not be able to be as absolutely perfect in your mind as you wanted it to be but you, you've got to find a way to get the result now he's going to get a bit of a grace period this year obviously but into next season if it's still not really happening for him perfectly in terms of the results I'd be a bit conf- concerned for him by like let's say October or whatever and mm. it's probably not even just the forwards to be honest but let's say the fullbacks the build-up play obviously he's got Kukurei out the side at the moment, whereas he was his first choice at Brighton, and he used him in quite a lot of different and and varying and creative ways. But at the minute, he's not found a way for him to get into the team, which is an odd thing. But you know, these these are just the the little difficulties that he's got to to overcome. Well, he definitely needs to stop playing Kukurei as a centre back because while that might be fine at a Brighton, it's not going to be fine for a club like Chelsea. 
where the standards are just so much higher. Um, there was a question asked there that Osterson score goals under Potter, and I'm just looking. And in his time there, where they were in the top two divisions, in um, in Sweden, which is about five years, uh, they have a, a positive goal scoring record twice. Uh, both about plus 12. They scored around 50 goals both seasons. But in the other three, they were like zero or negative, So, which is very similar to his time at Brighton. I just, I just wonder if there's a little flaw. I wonder if he has a bit of the Nagelsmann about him where he overthinks things a little bit too much and jumps too quickly from one shape to another and there's something that gets lost. Rather than just focusing in on you know, one shape and maybe different ways to play within that shape, who knows? But I, I said at the time, I thought it was too big a job for him. I said at the time it was the wrong move. I said he should have waited because I thought Spurs would come up at some point, probably in the summer. I, I think Conte will go after this season. I'd be stunned if he's there next year. Based on his recent comments, I might be stunned if he's there by the summer. And Potter would have been first choice for that job. And I think... Spurs is a less pressurized job than Chelsea is and has a better culture of giving managers an opportunity than Chelsea, where managers don't get an opportunity. If you don't perform, you're gone. And I know it's a new owner, but that culture clearly still exists based on what happened to Tuchel. That's a very nice Um, way of saying that failure is rewarded at Tottenham. Yeah, with that, yeah, and failure is rewarded at Tottenham, and success is often punished at Chelsea. I mean, that's just just how those clubs go. Uh, we should talk about the game of football then that's going to take place uh, this weekend. You mentioned Chelsea's injury issues, and there is a significant list of players out: Ingolo Kante, Raheem Sterling, Dennis Zakaria, Reese James, Wesley Fafana, Ben Chilwell, Armando Brogia. Christian Pulisic and Eduard Mendy all injured. And that's nine injuries. And Joao Felix suspended, having been sent off against Fulham. Uh, for us, no Diaz, no Jota, no, no Virgil, no Artur. No Bobby, because whatever's going on with his injury. Costas should be fine. And Darwin should be back. So... We're likely to be without five players, um, but you know, three of them probably wouldn't be starters. The two starters were missing, Diaz and Virgil. Whereas with them, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say Kepa is first choice now. But Mendy was at least an option for them. Pulisic probably a starter. Chilwell is a starter. Fafana is a starter. James is a starter. Sterling is a starter. And I think Kante would be a starter and probably Joe Felix as well. So they're missing a lot of what would probably be their preferred team for this game, which should play into our hands. But other stuff has played into our hands this year and we've let it slip through. I'm expecting to see a team from them similar enough to what they had against Crystal Palace because I'm not sure they've really got many alternatives. So against Palace, Kepa started in goal. Uh, I, I imagine that will stay the same. Then it was Arisa Balaga, Chalaba, Thiago Silva, Badi Ashile, and Hall played left back. 
I'm kind of expecting the same unless he decides to put Aspie at left back. Uh, I think maybe Aspie Ligueta to start right back. And Hall left back? Yeah, I think so. I think Hall stays in the side, to be honest. I think he's he played well. He, he looks a real player. Yeah, I think he's more or less won himself a, a, a starting spot at the moment. Um, my only doubt is whether Baddy Sheila plays again alongside Silva or it's Silva and Chalaba, because Chalaba's played the last few games and mm. seems to be someone who he does like in the side, but I wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, like I said, Athbilic Guetta come in against us. So in midfield, they started a Conor gallagher Jorginho double pivot. And I'd be surprised if anyone was impressed by said double pivot, but Kovacic did come off the bench, and I would be shocked if Kovacic doesn't start against us. Yeah. So I'm guessing Kovacic and Jorginho as a two, if he goes with 4-2-3-1. Yeah, it would have been Mend- uh, Mendy, Zakaria and Kovacic, but uh, Zakaria's off. Zakaria's out as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, the three behind the one was Zayic on the right, Chukwemeka as a 10, and Mason Mount on the left. Now, they don't really have many options because of the injuries to Sterling and to Pulisic. But I'm guessing Chuck Wemeka drops out. Mount plays as the 10 with Zayic one side. And maybe we see Mudrik's debut on the left. I can think of no reason why Mudrik wouldn't play. He's been playing, he's fit, he's ready, and he cost them €100 million. Euros, so probably play him. The only thing I could think of that he wouldn't play is that he's absolutely distraught by this transfer, having spent the last few months twerking for Arsenal <laughs> and tweeting and Instagramming about Arsenal, and he has said nothing on his social media since he joined Chelsea. Nothing. Yeah, but I expect that he starts on the on the left, and then Kai most likely starts as the nine. So, it's a it's a decent team, but it's not a great team by any stretch. There's a, a lot of weak points in it. Um, both fullbacks, I would identify as weak back weaknesses. I think Thiago Silva's lack of pace costs them every game. They just get it. Like, against Palace, the official Chelsea account tweets out, how good is he? He was at fault for three chances that Palace had. Just because they didn't score from them, doesn't improve his performance. This is the Lovren treatment. Now, he's a lot better than Lovren ever was, but he is a bit of a liability because he can't really run. Um, so I, I think that defence can easily be got at. The midfield, Jorginho's never going to be a player I'd want in my midfield. And that front four, Zayic Mount Havertz is a little bit one-paced for me. So I could see a lot being filtered out to Mudrik. And that will make him, obviously, their danger man, especially considering what Matoma did to Trent. But I think if we can stop the supply to Mudrik, I think there's a lot of ways we can get at this team. I mean, there should be. There there should be quite a lot. I mean, you're talking just in that 11 that we've mentioned, a new centre-back partnership, because Barry Shealy's only just signed. A new entire left flank because Hall's only just come into the team and Mudrik has just been signed. Uh, Jorginho's been out the side for as long as people have been, somebody else has been fit, basically, because he's not been playing well at all. 
Um, Ziyech, again, another one who's only just come back into the team because of injuries elsewhere. It's not a stable or cohesive unit. There are a lot of areas where people haven't been playing alongside each other or haven't been playing in partnership with each other for, for quite a while now. And they are... The build-up play is okay. Like, I don't mind what Chelsea do in terms of the build-up play, but defensively, they've been all over the place. Like, really, really poor. Worse worse in the back four than Liverpool have been in the back four. We know where Liverpool's problems are. It's it's ahead of the back four, not shutting down play mm. and not tracking runners and all those other really, really lovely things that we don't really want to go over right now because we've spoken about them so much of late. But Chelsea's are actually in that back line. That's where they've really, really struggled. Um, against Fulham, I mean... Fulham could have, could have scored like three, four, five more goals than they did because they were just all over the place positionally. And that was Fulham without without Mitrovic without as well. Mitrovic, yeah, like Chelsea again. Chelsea could have been three up themselves because going forward, I do think that they played well and they created enough chances. And Leno did you know pretty well, all things considered. But it's at the back, and they were playing a three in that game. But like Koulibaly, Silva between the two of them, loads of spaces. Chalaba, I thought had a nightmare that day. As Quetta as a wing back. In the bin, he's not he, like even no, at his best, he's debatable as a wing back because he had decent delivery from deep and all that. But no, he just he's not a wing back anymore. No, if you're playing a, a wing back system, you played Aspie as one of your centre backs. Yeah. You didn't play him as a wing back. But like, obviously, Koulibaly's had a really poor season. But I, I, I do feel for him a little bit because he's having to do a lot of heavy lifting there because Silva does. Silver things in a very small little area that he's willing to play in. And Koulibaly was having to do an awful lot. And he's the type of centre-back that, again, wants to play in his little box and not have to cover for somebody else. And I do wonder if Koulibaly had played next to Fafana for 10 games, what that pairing would have looked like. I think it would have looked pretty good, if I'm being honest. I'd like to see Fafana, Koulibaly and Badiashile as a back three. Because I think then you might get the best of Koulibaly. Not the best, because I think that's probably behind him. But, you know, I think you get a much better version than what we've seen. Um, I think they're there to be got at. And I, I think we should be going into this game confident. But we've been so dreadful that confidence is probably the last thing we have. For us, Carl, Alisson starts in goal. I assume Trent comes back into the team. I assume Robertson comes back into the team. But I think it's absolutely imperative that the same same centre-back pairing that started last night start on Saturday. Are you not tempted by Milner against Mudrick? No. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I'm <laughs> Well, I wouldn't be against him, like, booting Mudrick into the stands and getting a yellow card after eight minutes and then coming off once he's hobbled Mudrick. Because maybe Mudrick with a dead leg, Trent could probably deal with. Well, I think Trent has been uh, in the one-on-ones defensively quite strong over the last three, four games. And the problem is not so much the one-on-one direct duels, but where he has to turn and realise where the people are and run back and get into those positions. Like the the one you mentioned for the third goal, for example. It's, It's movement off the ball rather than when he's actually trying to defend the person in possession. I think in those, he's done pretty well recently. Even when he's, you know, been torn by Mitoma and the rest of it, it, in terms of his sticking with it and keep going at it and winning quite a few of them himself, he's done all right. So I'm going to back 
him to do okay against Mudrik, which is largely born of absolutely nothing that I really, really want and need him to. But yes, I agree with you in the centre. It's got to be Gomez and Canate for this one. Yeah. It had to be Gomez and Canate for the last one, to be perfectly honest with you. And yeah, Matip's form. it should have been Gomez and Canate for the last the last couple. Yeah, I think I think Matip's form is is very nearly as problematic as as Henderson's recently. It's been something that's cost us quite a lot of times. He's way, way, way below his best at the minute. So has to come out. The team. He he would be very high on my list of people to move out in the summer. Currently. Yes, yes, he was on mine. At his age, with the contract, with the injuries, he I I would be looking to get a fee for him mm-hmm. and use that towards funding his own replacement. I think that's one of the things we're going to have to do this summer. Um, we'll talk about that in a future pod. But um, in midfield. Thiago starts, there's no debate about that. I mean, he he just starts. But the other two positions, I suppose, are open to discussion. Now, I don't believe the right-sided midfield role should be open to discussion. I think Naby Keita is, by a considerable distance, the best option we have there. But like you mentioned, he did play 90 minutes against Wolves, whereas the other two were brought off. So I do wonder if Naby will start. Harvey obviously scored a goal and and looked more comfortable playing as a winger because, well, that's what happens when you play players in their actual position. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or... Go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, magboxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. But I don't want to see a Harvey in midfield. I think if if it's not Nabby. I think the only actually acceptable thing is that Basetic plays the right side at eight and plays it kind of conservative, deep, and gives Trent a helping hand. I think that's the only acceptable move if it's not Naby. Because Jordan Henderson does not deserve to play for Liverpool based on not just recent form, but he has been appalling, Carl appalling for 18 months and he was poor the season before that but his form this season has such a negative impact on the players around him think of the players that we have talked about who have had really bad seasons right outside of him Trent Matip Fabinho What's the one thing that connects the three of them? Jordan Henderson. Fabinho plays next to him. Matip plays behind him. And so does Trent. 
And both Trent and Matip are being left exposed over and over and over again, as is Fabinho, because he does not do his share defensively. Doesn't do a tap defensively. He is hopeless. Saturday was an embarrassment watching him just get run around by players. Adam Lallana ran ran around him. Adam Lallana looked like Zidane up against Henderson. And on the ball, he is hopeless. Absolutely beyond hopeless. There is no circumstance under which Jordan Henderson should be on the pitch for Liverpool. None. There is no footballing reason. Not one. Not because he's captain, because he hasn't shown any leadership this season. And not because of his ability on or off the ball. There's no reason for him to be in the team. Naby's option one. Basetich's option two. I'd rather Harvey there because at least he puts in the, puts in a bit of effort. He should be the fourth, maybe the fifth option on the right of midfield right now because Curtis is back. And I'd be tempted to say the sixth option because, or the seventh option because both Ox and Milner at least give a shit. Right, well, I'm taking option two, um, Fabinho and Basetich as the centre and right-sided because then it allows us to try and do what we tried to do against Brighton, actually, in that not we play as a, a double pivot and a one ahead with Thiago ahead, but allowing Thiago to still break forward a little bit more and have Basetich sit in, basically tilting what we usually do with the right side of one pushing on uh, and allow Thiago to do that and Basetic just sit alongside alongside Fabinho a little bit more, protect against the counters, because like you said, we expect them to come down that side, uh, down the Mudrick flank as the outball. So have Basetic as an extra protective element there. He's, he's a defensive midfielder for us. He was a centre-back. He's got good mobility. He's a decent challenger of the ball. And he uses possession quite well, usually. So I think that would be a more than acceptable um balance, let's say, between someone who's playing okay and a tactical nod to what we'll actually need in this game. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with the Basetic, Fabinho, Thiago midfield. I'm fine with Thiago being on the right and Basetic being on the left either if they want to just keep the normal structure. But that's it. Those three and Naby, you've got four midfielders that it's acceptable to start and anything else, I'm sorry, but you know, you might need to start considering uh, an intervention here with Jurgen, where you know his friends and family sit him down and say, "Look, we understand you've had to watch him play for years, and it's taken years off your life watching him endlessly hoof the ball." But you know, you can stop it at any fucking time. Uh, in attack, Mo obviously comes back in on the right, but there is decisions to be made, Carol Matchett in the number nine and left wing positions. My suggestion would be to play Cody Gakpo as the central one and Darwin Nunes on the left. Particularly because you mentioned the possibility of Aspilicueta and I would really like to see Darwin's pace against an Aspilicueta and um, Thiago Silva, right side of their defence. I think that could be something that's quite amusing to me. Uh, I also want Dave Vidarwin, and let's see how that goes. But I have actually tweaked it slightly, and I've got Harvey on the right, and I have Mo through the middle. Yeah, I can see the logic. 
I think. If you play that, it allows Harvey to drop back in and become a fourth midfielder if need be. And you can keep your two up front. And more than that, to be honest, I want somebody who performed quite well, or a couple of somebodies who performed quite well in that cup game and in a win, to be rewarded by staying in the team. And now Gomez is obviously one of those because he helped us keep a clean sheet. You're not going to keep Kelleher in. That's, That's fair enough. Everybody understands that. But I think Gomez was better and deserves to start. And I think... Harvey won it with with a good moment, and he had good work rate mm. and good energy, and he tracked back and all those kinds of. Things. And do you know what he did, Carl? Do you know what he did? He had a fucking set of balls on him, and he took a shot from distance, yeah. which just doesn't seem to be normal. Now he might get punished for that. He might, we might not see him for four or five games because he had the temerity to shoot from outside the box. But to see a young lad like that, just think, fuck it, I'm going to have a go from here. I'm going to back myself here. Yeah, I, I'm fine with Harvey starting on the right of the front three with Mo through the middle and Darwin on the left. I'm absolutely fine with that. And if it doesn't work immediately or, you know, partway through the game, obviously there's there's scope to change that and, and attack mm. a different way by putting Mo back to his normal spot. Harvey left, look for him to... Harvey left ball. Darwin through the middle. Yeah, and Darwin is obviously a bit more targety for crosses then. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I can get on board with that. Um, so... Are you allowed to predict this game? I, I was counting back before. I think I'm allowed to now because, I, I mean, I didn't ever get any official confirmation, but I assume it was the standard three-match ban for, for... So cup competitions will, of course, be included. Well, absolutely so, yeah. So it was the Leicester game yeah. that I got suspended for, and we've now had Brentford, Wolves, Brighton, and Wolves again. So that's four games. I think that's probably enough. That's fair enough. And she's not in the chat. Yeah, she she can't, can't give out. So... so... <laughs> Hi, Lisa Marie. Um, Right, so I am going to ask you now for your prediction. I am going to go for a 1-0 win to Liverpool. I don't think it's going to be very pretty, but I think we we maybe rediscovered or remembered enough things about being compact and working hard and being a team in the last match to hopefully replicate that and make it very difficult for Chelsea to play in behind us because they love everything to feet and everything... Um, in front of the defence and all the rest of it. So with a bit of organisation and a bit of hard work, I reckon there's another clean sheet to be had here. Mm. I'm feeling rambunctious, Carl Matches. Oh my. I'm spurred on by the joys of winning a football match. Are you, are you sure you're not spurred on by the sounds that came before the football match last night? <laughs> so I was... Oh, we'll just take a little tangent here. I... That is one of the funniest things that's ever happened. But um, I was watching, I don't know if you've seen the clip with with Laura Woods and Ali McCoyst, where they're talking about it. And Laura Woods said, I'll just leave it to you, Ali, to describe those noises. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, it's floating around on Twitter. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, Fair play. Those two are very good together, actually, Laura Woods and Ali McCoyst. The guy who did it, or the guy who's taking credit for it, is actually banned from setting foot in any sporting arena in the UK. So he might be getting himself in a bit of trouble, because I think he ran onto the pitch at some England cricket match and collided with one of the players or something like that. Um, So yeah, it was was very funny. And the fact that it was like a really old shitty phone as well just made it even funnier. I am going to pick a Liverpool win. Because my attempts to reverse jinx last week backfired spectacularly. I'm going to I'm going to give two predictions. Okay? I'm going to give the Jurgen 
doesn't bow to internal pressure in his mind and leaves Captain Hoofy sat where he belongs, which is in the stands. If that happens, I am going to suggest that we win this game 3-1. If Captain Hoofy does play, I think we lose 2-1. If he starts. Uh, Guy is letting us know that Ben Chilwell and Rhys James are both back in training, by the looks of things. I just... I have a tough time seeing Potter putting them both straight back in. James given not Chilwell. But the last time he put James back in, when he just recovered from an injury, he got injured straight away. So I I think he might leave him out. Back in training is very different to being match-ready, though. Exactly. And we don't even know if they're back in full training. They might just be back in training, back out on the grass. And they might not be doing full full sessions yet. Um, The last, let's see. I think this this match, while you look up whatever it is you're looking up, will be the first match of 2023 that we've both predicted Liverpool to win, which is uh, encouraging for the weekend, but pretty dismal for the current state of affairs. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Very much so. I'm going to go with 3-1 as long as Special Officer Hoofy doesn't play. And um, that is a scary movie reference. For those of you who are wondering, Carl Carl does Lord of the Rings references, which I miss every time, and I bring you scary movies. So there we go. Um, it would be it would be very Chelsea just for Kante to reappear for one game and then disappear again for a couple of months. But it looks like he's still out for at least another six weeks. So you know, fingers crossed, he stays uh, in his in his uh, recovery bed. We need to win this game. We have to win this game. If we don't win this game, Carl, we're going to end the weekend in 10th. And I can't be a fan of a 10th place team. I'm better than that. Forget the rest of them. I can't be associated with 10th place team. It's bad for my brand. And we could end up leveling points with Unai Emery's Aston Villa. That'd be horrible. Not having that. Not having it at all. Win the game, and we could go back as high as 6th. Ooh. The heady heights. Look, we've got 20 games to save ourselves. We've got 20 games to claw back a 10-point deficit on United and Newcastle. Newcastle have played a game more than us. We've got 20 games, and it needs to start this Saturday. No longer is it going to be acceptable. And if it if it goes wrong, then I will be on Raw after the game and I will call Jürgen a couple of names and, and get all upset with myself. But that's just how it is. Are you on Raw this weekend? I'm on the Raw this weekend. I'll also be getting... <clears throat> there we go. Can I ask you, if there you win this game, right? And you, and you mentioned, you know, mm. go up to the heady heights of sixth, which could, <laughs> could happen. It could happen. We would be on... It's like we managed by Rogers again. Yeah, we, we would be on 31 points level with Fulham, who would be on 31 points, and just behind Tottenham, who are on 33 points. Mm. And on Monday night, it's Fulham versus Tottenham. Who would you be wanting to win? What an odd question to have to ask. A bit mad. Um, And while we're on the subject, Mr. Antonio Conte did not come knocking on my door because he just would have been showing a massive scoreboard. No, he was was far too busy. Uh... Demanding that others within Chelsea step forward and take their share of the blame 
for what's going on. Uh, he is he is definitely um, setting up his exit. I think from Chelsea, Tottenham, um, or from Tottenham rather. Maybe he'll be Chelsea manager again by the end of the year. You never know. Who would I want to win? Right, if we win our game, we will have played the same number of games as Spurs. Then, no, actually, we yeah. see. Here's the thing: Spurs play City. Let's assume City beat Spurs because, although Conte tends to do well against Pep. But let's assume City beats Spurs. Conte doesn't do well in any so, of the big games. That's that's the whole point of the thing. So Spurs would have 33 points from 20 games. Fulham have 31 points from 20 games. We have 28 from 18. So we'd be leveling points at Fulham with a game in hand. On both. Two behind Spurs with a game in hand. Yeah. I think you'd want Fulham to win. On the assumption that they drop off as the season goes on. Yeah, because I don't think, think it's stronger as the season goes on, obviously, but they have, but I mean still a long way to go there for that. And it still feels like Mitrovic he's had a couple of niggly knocks here and there that have cost him some games. And you know, you, there is a lack of depth in that squad. And you also have to wonder, like, how long can they sustain playing the same 13, 14 players over and over and over again. Same thing I ask of Newcastle. I I think Newcastle and Fulham will drop off. I think Arsenal will drop off. I could be completely wrong about all of them. I think I would rather Fulham win the game than Spurs win. Just because, well, realistically, it doesn't matter because it's the teams above them we need to keep our eye on. So we... We, as a club, actually shouldn't even be looking at them. We should almost be just laser-focused on United and Newcastle. Nothing else matters. United and Newcastle. Claw them back and see where we are. That would be that would be my approach to it. Um, if United win tonight, they will go second. But then if City win, they will retake second. United would go third. But that would then be a 13-point gap to United, admittedly, with a game in hand. So Newcastle are really the team that I'm looking at. Where are they? They've got a game played more than 10 points clear. We win our game in hand. It's a seven-point gap. That's the only thing we should be focused on now. Overhaul Newcastle, and then we'll worry about what else is going on. Spurs don't look like a team right now that can go on a run. And I don't see anybody else. Like I don't see Chelsea getting their act together to get top four. I think it might just come down to us and Newcastle. Well, it's very optimistic given our current position, but okay. It is, it is. But if we win, we'll be sixth, Carol. Did you not, did you not hear that part? Right, we will leave it there. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Carol, do you have anything to plug? No, have, you, have you insulted any more mad Italians? Um, not not yet, but I'll see what I can do for the weekend. But um, in terms of... I, I'm amazed you haven't had, like, six different Todd Bowley articles. Like, surely that's just low-hanging fruit for the newsroom. Like, I mean, what madness has this idiot gotten up to today? It just it just feels a bit overdone. Like, every day there is something else to do, so people are doing it, and, like, I, I could I could, I could, could do something, but by the time I publish it, to be honest, it'd be out of date. He'd be doing something else anyway. So <laughs> He'd have bought six more players. Um, yeah. I'm look, impressed because, you know, this podcast's been four hours long, and by the time anybody stops listening, it'll be time for kickoff anyway. This podcast has been an hour and 20 minutes long, um, was delayed 20 minutes because of you, 
And uh, that's just what the truth of it is. So when Guy updates the scoreboard, and actually before we go, we must bring in Guy Drinkle uh, for both an update on the scoreboard and also a bit of Unai Emery watch, Guy Drinkle. We have the Danny Ings derby. Oh, yes. Villa are away at Southampton for a three o'clock kickoff. Uh, VPN ad will be at the end of the pod. Um, yeah. Southampton obviously remembers how to play football, but it was against Everton. Whereas Villa, with Emery's fantastic court, fantastic, um, are on the up. But they have some of the weirdest players in the league, because Leon Bailey is either really good or some bloke at the park. So they're still a funny team. Uh, And scoreboard-wise, I put it in earlier. Let me scroll... Uh, we were talking about Kukurea's hair for too long. So the lateness scores. I put it me and you at 10, Dave, because because there was one I was late for, but that was I said I was out, and then we changed podcast we were doing, because it was meant to be two-footed, and then I got fucked about. Um, but Carl's on 75. <laughs> outrageous. And that we've been nice to you because you were nearly an hour late one day. We didn't. We didn't add it on. Yeah, that is beautiful. And Carl, last thing: you're a man who likes order in your life, and you like to know what's going on. How chaotic is your brain right now, given the fact that Unai Emery has led Aston Villa to back-to-back wins away from home in the Premier League over good teams in Brighton and Spurs? Avoid the league, that's all I can say. The, the season makes no sense. It's a season with an interruption due to a World Cup in the middle of it. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing's going to plan. <laughs> Leeds are going to win the league. Let's go home. Be happy to see Jesse Marsh get his hands on it. He'll have to be happy. Right, see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index, and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.